Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. One of those many times of year... People feel pressured to show up for gatherings. Compliance is expected. We're saying no can be difficult. When we decline invitations or set limits on how much we can show up for others, it can result in either subtle or overt pressure when we set boundaries in our life, when we don't want to show up for certain engagements, in setting boundaries, it can activate an internal conflict of, on the one hand, guilt, a sense that we're not doing something that we should, and setting boundaries can result in a sense of guilt, but on the other hand, it can also then be counteracted with a spate of self-justification and rationalization. So internally, we're caught back and forth between the sense of, oh, was that right of me to, was that okay that I said no, versus then justifying why we said no. The ability to set boundaries is so important in terms of our growth and maturation and reaching developmental stages in life where we can exert agency. And in fact, Buddhism itself is a practice in many ways of setting boundaries, abstaining, knowing how to say no. The Buddhas, if you follow the Pali Canon, was spent uh, refraining from engaging in activities that everybody else did and believed that he should engage in, that he, very often he found unskillful. Countless suttas. The Buddha encourages practitioners to say no to those who encourage us to not only kill and steal and lie and engage in adultery or prostitution, or, but also he encouraged people to decline mingling with people who encourage us to indulge in intoxicants, who even encourage us in one sutta to saunter the streets at late hours. I love that phrase, saunter the streets at late hours. He encouraged us to decline people who want us to gamble, spend recklessly, act foolishly. And the phrase viramati, which is one of the most common in the Pali Canon, is a phrase of saying, I decline, I abstain, I'm not going to be involved in that. From a, a therapeutic perspective, certain markers indicate reaching certain plateaus of growth or uh, healing or moving forward in therapy. And one is the ability to set good boundaries in life. To one, uh, the, another big one is, of course, to not 
always give in to fear and anxiety and to sometimes be able to confront our fears and to not rely on making our life smaller. A big, important milestone of success in the therapeutic encounter is the ability to set good boundaries. So why is it so hard to set boundaries in adult life? Well, the ability to attach is how we thrived as a species, of course. Our core drive is to be seen in the eyes of the other, to matter in other people's minds. As a, a social species, a species as we are of pack animals, we have emotions that are feedback systems geared to encourage us to affiliate and to connect and to stay with and to appease others. A lot of our core affects, fear, sadness, anger, jealousy, envy, concern how well we attach, how strong our interpersonal bonds are. So we're primed by evolution to seek connection and to stick with connection, whatever connection takes, whether it's, it generally means being agreeable, to, to go along even if it in some way contradicts our needs for self-care or contradicts our moral ethics, moral codes, or contradicts just um, other contradictory plans we have. We are conditioned to try to be agreeable, to try to impelled to say yes. If you'd like to read more about how strong this the circuits are in the brain, including the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, the insula, the orbital frontal, there's a very important contemporary psychologists like uh, Lieberman, Alan Shore, Dan Siegel, Omri Gilead, uh, Mario McEwen, Sir Philip Shaver, and so on and so forth. And a lot of interesting neuropsychology and the socializing circuits, neural so circuits of the brain that encourage us to connect and socialize. We're unable to set boundaries in childhood because we are dependent and because parents don't trust us to say no. So much of our most formative years that shape our right hemisphere and the emotional mind are set during a period of life where we don't feel permitted to say, no, I don't want to do that. Literally, our brains are shaped in, that, in a stage of life when we cannot set boundaries. So we all develop strategies to get attention when attention is unavailable and we develop strategies to avoid attention when it's unwelcome, when attention from caregivers is engulfing, enmeshing, when it is scary. So just as we learn to, to develop tools and techniques to get our needs met for attention, we also develop strategies to avoid having to deal with caregivers when we're not ready. Some of these coping strategies, unfortunately, can stay with us for our entire life. 
some of them are reaction formation, which is essentially, or what Winnicott called a false self, where we just go along with, we comply, even though what adults are asking of us is in some way uh, really uncomfortable, scary, uh, unwanted. For a long time, I couldn't, I didn't have the capability of setting boundaries with my dad who constantly was pushing me to engage in activities that he loved and I had absolutely no joy from things. My dad liked to hunt and I couldn't bear it. He liked to camp. I don't like waking up on, <laughs> I don't like sleeping outdoors and I don't like waking up on wet ground. Uh, my dad, you know, wanted me to go sailing with him. I don't like being on the water. <laughs> so, but in those in those times of life, we don't feel permitted to say no. So we very often will comply and other, you know, and not state how we've, that we don't want to engage in something. Many of us will <clears throat> to get out of things will um, rely on avoidance, will literally hide or navigate around people rather than learning to say no, will lie to come up with a reason we can't do something and then only to be exposed and will lie later on. Sometimes we'll practice in life extreme self-reliance as a way to avoid in any way asking for help because we associate help with being engulfed by a caregiver and so forth. Uh, lying, denial, avoidance, coping, uh, reaction formation, being compliant at all costs, people pleasing, all of these coping strategies were developed in an age where we couldn't set boundaries, where we didn't have the permission to say, no, that's not what I want to do. And to the degree that we still employ these maladaptive strategies in adult life, which are regressive and keep us trapped in an earlier developmental stage, which make us feel more vulnerable in our own skin and don't and make us less likely to state our needs in a relationship is because we don't sometimes learn how to confidently set boundaries when we set boundaries not only do we start to have power in relationships or i can even say any sense of uh, equality in relationships but we start to feel a sense of self-esteem and agency. We start to feel a sense of being less vulnerable because we know that we no longer have to duck or come up with reasons or uh, justifications. We no longer have to uh, lie to get out of things. We no longer have to just be compliant. The entire embodied state of childhood starts to be shed in the setting of boundaries in core relationships and workplaces and friendships and family systems. Developing 
the capacity to say no, in short, is essential to our maturation. Um, all of us, in my experience, in 16 years now of providing counseling, all people from all different attachment styles have innate struggles in setting boundaries. Secure individuals may feel obligated to stay involved with their loved one's suffering. They tend to have a sense of, of that it's the right thing to do to <clears throat> stay, uh, to, to not individuate, to not pull apart, to not set limits. They feel in some way ethically bound to be over-involved in certain attachment schemas. Avoidant individuals, on the other hand, will very often set overly rigid boundaries, but other times they will rely on denial and avoidance coping and lying to get out of, to get out of requests for their time. Anxious individuals rarely set boundaries very well, nor do they state their needs as a matter of fact. Uh, yet at the same time, anxious individuals, while they'll fail to set boundaries, they will then get very, very angry that, at the fact that their attachment figures didn't know that they didn't want to do something. They tend to believe that other people should know what they need and what they can't do. Disorganized, traumatized individuals tend to hide and run from obligations and very often use substances as a way to mitigate their guilt or shame at having to, again, retreat from life. So in short, we all have to work on the skill of setting boundaries. Even more complicated is that there are not necessarily right boundaries or universal boundaries. All of us have different um, experiences and these experiences can make from childhood can make some of us feel engulfed and overwhelmed and swamped, whereas others can feel that's just the right amount of obligations and responsibilities. So some people, when uh, facing requests from f from loved ones, friends, um, uh, colleagues at work, can just feel completely swarmed and swamped. And I even know people who during the um, beginning stages of the pandemic, which was a global catastrophe, but said, oh, I actually kind of loved it. <laughs> because it got me out of all of those situations where I wound up going to things that I didn't want to go to. <laughs> and for me, I'm like, well, if you learn to set boundaries, you wouldn't welcome a pandemic as a way to get out of social obligations. That seems to be an extreme way to, to, uh, to not simply have to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm stretched. I, I can't do that. Um, so, so some people love being involved in 
all of the gatherings, social events, and there's no need for them to set boundaries or they have to set very few boundaries because they're comfortable. But other people can be very overwhelmed very quickly. And so there's no right amount of boundaries. You have to, we have to be aware of what internally indicates we need to set boundaries. So what, are, what is it internally that indicates we need to set boundaries? Well, that's recurring anger and resentments, especially. Anger is the affect that was developed throughout evolution to indicate that we've been uh, <clears throat> very often asked to do too much. Too much has been placed on our shoulders. We've been intruded upon, we've been transgressed upon, and so forth. Resentments are the natural out growth or outcome from when we go along with things that we don't want to do too often. Uh, exhaustion from social events is an indication that we haven't set enough boundaries. And avoiding people, if you ever uh, see people and we tend to hide or, you know, navigate around them or cross the street, or uh, that's an indication that, or we don't return messages, we just drop them, uh, is an indication that we haven't been setting good, solid adult boundaries in our life. All of these affects, anger, resentment, exhaustion, avoidance, so many of them almost miraculously dissipate when we start practicing setting limits in our interpersonal lives. So we set boundaries for us, not for other people. And what that means is most of boundary setting is just stopping ourselves from doing things, not saying to someone, no, you can't do this. You can't ask me to do that. You can't tell me. It's more about a boundary is an internal intention or agreement that we will not go along with this impulse to be compliant and people-pleasing and agreeable. It asks us to separate our feelings from the feelings of another person. In other words, it, we have to allow other people to be upset and not get and not have that change our internal affect simply because someone is disappointed or frustrated that we're not agreeing to help them move <laughs> or that we're not uh, showing up late at a bar for them or that we're not going to see their uh, them play in a band or whatever um, as if anybody seeing anybody play in bands right now, but that's just an old example. Um, we have to, again, put aside the felt obligation to manage other people's moods. And we have to be willing to put up with the risk that we'll be guilted when we uh, don't explain 
or justify our boundaries. And it's important not to do that. And I'll talk about that in a moment. We must overcome this inclination that we should always be liked. And we must be willing to sit with guilt at times rather than get lost in a whole internal uh, diatribe of self-justification as why we simply said no. So let's look at some examples of setting how to set boundaries in our life skillfully. Um, a couple of practices I've developed that have really helped me over the years is I've found that uh, individuals who are particularly engulfing or pushy or emotionally dysregulated tend to call when they're emotionally activated. And that's when they're calling or when they're reaching out is the very one time not for me to engage at that moment because that's when they have the strongest emotional impulse to want somebody to do something for them. So uh, I found that when I or when other people are ambushed by intrusive demands or sudden people who people who are suddenly emotionally dysregulated and pushy and forceful, it can catch us so off guard that we become vulnerable to autonomic nervous system shifts where we go from being capable of replying confidently to this overwhelm where we almost shut down and just fawn and become compliant uh, and agree to do something that we don't want to do. And then what very often happens is if we feel ambushed and agreed to something that we don't want to do, then we try to get out of it by not connecting with them around the time that they're moving or or want us to see the band or want us to, uh, I don't know, go to their bridal shower or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just coming up with examples off the top of my head. So um, uh, one way to start off on the right foot is when you realize that someone is associated with pushy, aggressive behavior, when someone has is been difficult to set no to in our life, is when we see them reaching out, is to wait. Not avoid them, but to wait until we've found the right time to call them back and then call them back when we are extremely comfortable when we have a bookend to the conversation, which means we know that we only have a certain amount of time to talk. So we're not feeling inclined to pick up the phone or immediately respond to the text message or the email or whatever form the message comes in. We pause and we wait for time to pass and then when we're in a comfortable, relaxed state of mind, we return the call. 
This is important because generally by that time, whatever impulse has driven the relative or the, the boss or whatever to try to reach us has somewhat passed. They might have moved on to some other issue or some other uh, stressful concern in their life. And so very often when I call back people or return messages to people <clears throat> who are pushy, by the time I do that, maybe hours later, they've already forgotten what it was they reached out with to me so urgently for. So I never feel obligated to connect with someone when they want me to. The second is, unless of course I have appointments with people, that's an entirely different thing. The second is, um, it's important for me to keep my feelings separate by staying mindful of my internal state when I'm dealing with people who are entrapping, aggressive, pushy, and so forth. So I'll breathe into my belly. I'll relax my shoulders. If I'm talking to them on the phone or on FaceTime, I'll make literally the volume lower, which makes their voice less uh um you know demanding or less imperative i'll actually on facetime if someone's very pushy and wants me to do something i'll actually make their image smaller it's somehow easier to say no and set boundaries when the the person's volume is slightly lower if i'm on the phone with someone uh and actually one person really comes to mind um, I'll put them on speakerphone rather than have them right up in my ear because somehow having somebody right up in my ear feels very intimate and it can make it harder to get distance from that emotional distance from that voice to feel permitted to say, uh, I'm not sure I'm up for that. In fact, I had one person in, a very important person in the spiritual Buddhist landscape who used to call me up regularly and try to get me to speak uh, for various different Buddhist events that I never wanted <laughs> to be involved with for various reasons. Generally, they were events that would charge money, and I don't like being a part of anything that charges money. Uh, it's against my Buddhist principles. So, uh, but this person was very pushy and kept on talking about how important this program was and so forth. So when they would call, I would literally put the phone on the speaker. I'd turn down the volume. I'd sit in a really comfortable chair and look around while they spoke, half listening, but also breathing and relaxing. And one of my favorite techniques, I know this is going to sound just bizarre, but I, when I knew I had to speak with this person because I called them up, I would never answer the phone when they called. I'd just wait and then return the call when I was ready. I'd very often put an image of Malcolm X or Fidel Castro or some figure I associated with a very strong capability of saying no. <laughs> I refuse. Someone who, a, a, a figure of, of strength. And for me, 
you know, priming oneself with an image associated with strength is a, is a wonderful tool to give us permission to say no. I, and uh, I would set the agenda. So rather than wait for them to start talking, I would keep the focus on them. Hey, how's it going? What's going on? And so when they said, hey, I, I want you to, or I'm hoping you will, then I would say, uh, um, uh, well, I can't make that, but I'd love to have lunch with you sometime. So rather than simply saying like a flat, hard boundary, no, I sometimes would deflect attention away from the fact that I was declining by ending with a positive reaffirming like, oh, I'd love to see you, but no, I can't make that event. I can't go to, the, you know, that, uh, that uh, dinner, that uh, I can't go to that gathering, I can't go to that whatever. So um, <clears throat> it's important for us not to justify or explain why we're declining an invitation. Some of us can feel, but it's only polite, or I'm expected to have a reason why I can't say no. It can almost feel uncomfortable to simply say, I can't do that, but you know, I'd love to see you another time, or I'd love to see you next week, or whatever. It can feel like we owe the other person a reason or a justification, but in fact, that's a residue from childhood where when we said no to teachers, to administrators, to adults, to parents, to relatives, we were expected to have a good reason. And so by the time we reach adult life, we believe, we feel this, uh, this, uh, essentially this internal conflict of discomfort in simply saying no. Uh, I'm not available for that. That we can feel that we need to explain why. And if the more we explain, two things happen. One, we, we remain in that regressive, vulnerable state where we feel we have to make other people uh, agree with our decisions all the time. And also when we explain our boundaries, we encourage the other person to argue our boundaries with us. If you say, no, I can't do that because the X or, you know, the traffic will be too long or I'm uh, too tired or whatever, they'll say, oh, no, the traffic's not going to be bad or no, you know, everybody's tired, but it's still important or blah, blah, blah. We encourage debate. And that only makes things worse because the more we debate, the more resentful, the more we'll feel impelled to rely on uh, dissembling or uh, avoidance or denial or whatever. Whereas the simple no cannot be debated. People can try to push through our no, but they can't really debate it. So there are, I should note, hard boundaries, which are essentially no, versus soft, which is that example of um, 
you know, I can't do that, but I can, I'd love to see you another time. I'd love to see you uh, for lunch. I'd love to, to do something else with you. It really depends on wh what kind of context it's in, how much power you feel you have in the dynamic. In most cases, it can be useful to start with soft boundaries rather than simply saying har setting hard boundaries of no with nothing else added to it. Uh, but in general, it is uh, an, an exceptionally important developmental milestone to be able to set boundaries, especially with people in our family system, with people in work, with uh, close friends, so that we can wind up in relationships that are based on real connection rather than on simple compliance and so forth. Lastly, one of my favorite examples of setting boundaries was the Buddha in the Akosa Sutta. Akosa was a very wealthy, pushy, aggressive businessman, and he wanted his son to take over his business. But his son uh, was... Um, uh, became a Buddhist practitioner and took up robes with the Buddha and went off to be like the Buddha, a mendicant. And so um, Akosa came to the Buddha and demanded that the Buddha send his son back to him. And the Buddha said no. <laughs> and Akosa kept pushing and the Buddha said no. And then Akosa started insulting the Buddha and guilting and shaming him and said, you know, uh, how dare you? And the Buddha said, well, your son's a grown man. I mean, he can make his own choices. So Akosa insulted the Buddha. And finally, the Buddha asked Akosa a question. He said, do you, Akosa, ever invite people over to your house? And Akosa said and with a harumph, of course I do. And the Buddha asked, well, do you serve food and beverages? And Akosa said, of course I do. And the Buddha said, well, if somebody, if one of your guests doesn't want to eat your food or drink your beverages, who owns the food and the beverages that they don't eat? And Akosa says, well, I do. And then the Buddha says, well, I don't accept any of your words, so you own them. Go off and be with them. So that is a wonderful, wonderful example of setting a good boundary. Um, so let's practice, shall we? Practice first getting comfortable in our own skin so that we can uh, set those good boundaries and we'll then do a visualization practice as well. And uh, just a couple of notes uh if you'd like to support my work everything i do is by donation so um um the the venmo is dharma d-h-a-r-m-a punks p-u-n-x n-y-c and also we placed in the chat window a list of resources to help uh individuals in india during the covid uh uh, pandemic.
if you're interested in that. Uh, it, there's also um, other, many other uh, resources out there um, to find good ways to support people in India at this time. So thanks. Let's uh, find a really comfortable seated position and closing the eyes or just allowing the eyes to settle on something in your environment that is neutral, perhaps a flame of a candle or a plant or a window, something that is you can just rest your attention on. and bring the focus of our attention to our internal experience at first, if you can. Even if you're looking at a stationary neutral object, bring the focus of your awareness internally and find the strongest sensations that are occurring in your body. For some of us, it might be uh, the breath. For some of us, it might be discomfort or pain. For some, it might be just a neutral sensation of contact with the floor or something that's a part of the body that's fidgety, eyelids flickering, fingers clenched or uh, just slight twitches and movements in the body that are involuntary. And just note whatever these strong sensations are, just allowing them to be there, not trying to push them away. And then if the strongest sensation wasn't your breath. Now bring your attention to the sensations of inhalation and exhalation. Finding the area in the body where they are expressed. Clearly. I very often feel the breath in my chest. I often like to bring the awareness down to the belly, which is a much subtler and useful area of the body to experience the breath. Abdominal breathing can relax the vagus nerve. 
engage the vagus nerve, I should say, which in itself is relaxing. Feeling the belly expand like a balloon with the inhalation and then subside as if you're expelling the exhalation with via the contraction of the belly or the release of the abdominal muscles. Some people find it most relaxing to have the in-breath and the out-breath be the same duration. So they might count to four on the in and four on the out-breath. I've often found it's much more soothing to have the out-breath much significantly longer than the in-breath. So if I count to four on the inhalation, I'll count to six or eight on the exhalation. The longer the exhalation, the more we release acetylcholine in the vagal nerve, which tones the vagal nerve, parasympathetic, lowers respiration. Encouraging the eyes to settle. It's particularly useful to if you experience awareness as kind of resting inside of your head, between your eyes, I mean behind your eyes and between your ears, to see if you can stretch or in a sense move closer to the sensations in your body as if awareness is getting off of its perch above the body in the head and then almost as if you're taking the stairs down into the body and your awareness can get up and close to the feeling of breathing One monk I studied with for a number of years used to say that practice is almost like being a, acting as if we're an astronaut from another planet who's suddenly landed in a human body. We've never been in a human body before and we have that curiosity as to what all the sensations are like. What does it feel like to be in a human body, starting afresh? 
where every sensation is new and slightly different than what we expect. And just explore the internal sensations as if they're a constellation, like a night sky, an awareness is now almost like we are floating amidst all of the stars in the sky when we can move effortlessly closer to some so just as using that analogy just awareness can now move around the constellation of sensations the sensations of the feet the sensations of the hands the sensations of the sit bones the sensations of the abdomen, the sensations of the eyes, the sensation of breathing. And just allow your awareness to move effortlessly through this constellation of sensory impressions.
Sorry, I realized I had my sound out. <laughs> so, uh, moving to the final practice of uh, visualizing ourselves in a situation where we have to set boundaries with someone who's insistent. So, visualize yourself When you don't even have to visualize yourself, visualize an individual associated with pushy, aggressive, in, in some way insistent demands. If you can bring them to mind, conjure their image or just in some way evoke that experience of a situation where you feel pressured to do something that you don't feel comfortable engaging in. And while you visualize this person, try to keep your belly soft. Your breath really relaxed. Your shoulders, your face very relaxed. A smile. And just in your own mind, just confidently say, I can't. And while you imagine yourself saying, I can't, just keep your belly soft, the breath relaxed, your shoulders relaxed, with no felt obligation to explain, to justify, to rationalize. Keeping the forehead soft. Just experiencing internal confidence, permission to set our own limits in work, in friendships, in family systems, 
in social engagements. And if you have any resentments or anger from past experiences where you felt pressured into interactions that were exhausting, demoralizing, or felt uncomfortable in the aftermath, use that, harness that energy to just practice saying, yeah, I can't do that. In whatever form of boundary setting that feels right for you. All right, so I'm going to uh, ring the bowl and just take your time to return slowly, patiently to any level of engagement you that feels right with the world around you and with the uh, Zoom gathering that we're on. But no, no rush. Take your time. So thank you for your uh, participation. Uh, so there was already a question. I'm encouraging you all to uh, uh, to ask anything that by either raising your hand or you know there's a way to to raise a hand on Zoom. And uh, so, um, uh, let's see, what, here was one. Uh, Josh, it's much harder with significant others and close friends to, uh, to set boundaries. Any advice on that? Um, well, in with uh, friends, uh, romantic partners, and uh, with people we're very close to, um, of course, the feeling of obligation can be stronger. Uh, 
Um, and so in such in setting boundaries, it's worth following the peak end rule that Daniel Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky, the clinical psychologist, talked about, that people tend to remember the last um, experience from any interpersonal event. So if we simply say, no, I can't, uh, with l people who we're very close to, that might be the last thing that they remember and they might feel uh, rejected or it might feel very uncomfortable for us. So with people I care about or like, I always try to reaffirm that a relationship is important to me by after I say I can't do that, but I love seeing you and I'll po propose another time that actually feels uh, right for me as well to meet with them. So I'm, you know, I'm willing, I'm reaffirming my desire to engage with them, to connect with them, but I'm also just maintaining the boundary that, you know, I can't go to out to a super expensive restaurant that doesn't, you know, that only serves meat or I can't, um, you know, I don't want to go to certain, you know, situations that are no longer compatible with what I'm comfortable with. So again, uh, reaffirming the the relationship, the value of the person. So it's not just, it, you know, it's just encouraging, you know, restating that we would like to uh, uh, connect with them. Uh, and then there's another one. Can you say more about avoidance coping and how does it relate to procrastination? Well, um, Avoidance coping is uh, generally a way that people manage anxiety by uh, navigating around situations that are triggering or difficult, emotionally difficult. Procrastination is another way that people <coughs> avoid uh, creative tasks that might in some way um, open them up to the possibility of rejection or disappointment. So in, in one sense, avoidance coping and procrastination are related certainly by a, um, a connection in that both avoidance coping, we're avoiding any situation that makes us anxious that might in, that might trigger a sense of panic or, or emotional discomfort. And procrastination is the way we stall or put off doing uh, tasks that might be viewed by others and might in some way leave us open to experiencing rejection, which is of course extremely uncomfortable and painful. Uh, both Avoidance coping and procrastination are regressive uh, tools um, in the sense that they're coping strategies that are maladaptive and they don't allow us to 
um, they're not considered they're considered to be signs that we're not progressing in terms of uh, integrating our lives fully so with procrastination we have to basically connect with the part of us that's frightened and assure it that we'll take it slowly that will only reveal things to people that we feel safe with so if it's something creative or if it's looking for another job or it's doing something that's uncomfortable we'll take our time with it we won't rush it so that the as we call it, the inner child is terrified and with avoidance coping we have to treat it the same way we have to connect with the part of us that's frightened and understand why it might be terrified of certain situations even if we don't know we have to promise it will take it slowly uh, titrate slowly expose ourselves to triggering situations um, and let's see uh, I often find that feel I often find myself feeling that other people's needs and keeping them happy are more important than mine and find myself unaware of how much I'm trying to please them even though they aren't asking for anything how much of this is related to not setting boundaries well yeah it's completely related um, we again due to our uh, socializing experiences of childhood which is not just in family systems but in educational systems and in interactions with all kinds of authority we're trained to be compliant and we feel very vulnerable if other people's emotions are unhappy and very often that keeps us imbalanced towards overly monitoring the facial expressions and countenance of other people and being unaware of even what our internal states are and a great place to start is to develop ongoing a bit of ongoing mindfulness which means to practice not just being aware of what's going on in our feeling states when we're meditating but having a sense of what we feel when we're engaging with other people who are uh, demanding or who are um, pushy and even if they're not if we feel that impulse to be pleasing and to always be accommodating even with people who are not necessarily demanding that it starts by finding internally where this this first this embodied somatic state of uh, tension that builds up unless we're making people happy all the time and being willing to soothe it and soften it and not not feeling inclined to always do that um, just to feel comfortable in our own skin it involves knowing how to self-soothe the body and uh, it can also involve practicing with people who are really safe 